Welcome everyone to another episode of the Impact Co podcast series. But my first podcast from a finance and investing perspective. Um, we've teased this on Spotify, we've teased it on YouTube as well as on Instagram. Uh, and this is sort of the first iteration of it for me at least. Um, so welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, in terms of where this pod- podcast is available, there's a live video version on YouTube, which you may be watching right now. There's, of course, the audio, which you might be listening to on Spotify. And if you are, welcome. Um, as well as a couple of different mediums where I am going to post a little bit, bit of content, you'll see that come out. So you're either watching the video or the audio version of the podcast. But there's going to be some reels and shorts that come out also just as subsidiaries to my sections of the podcast. Uh, remember, the topic is finance and investing. So if we do get into some meatier topics during the podcast that I don't really have time to explain, I do want to have them up in sort of real and short forms so that I can sort of show you and talk you through some of those concepts to sort of fill it out a little bit more. Also, putting it out in those formats means that if there are any comments, questions, um, I can always respond to them in those couple of formats. I can't really respond to comments on something like Spotify. Um, my podcast series, as I discussed in the short reel you might have seen on Instagram, is going to cover three different areas. I'm going to discuss companies a lot. If you think about the amount of assets invested in the finance industry, the amount invested in companies dominates everything else. It's a key building block in, in achieving financial returns. So you kind of have to understand companies and how portfolios of companies are built, which is my day job. Um, so we're going to spend time talking a lot about companies and building up our knowledge of companies. Uh, and I'll walk you through that in a second. This episode is, of course, on Apple. I also want to talk about current events. I, I sort of mentioned SVB and the banking crisis in my intro video. Uh, that went on to Instagram, as well as any other sort of financial topics and current events. So that's sort of the flow of things. We'll talk a lot about companies and investing, financial topics, as well as current events. Now, I was thinking about how to start this podcast. And quite frankly, I wanted to give you some sort of intro just to give you a feel of what I'm thinking about of this podcast, how I came upon the podcast, who am I a little bit. Um, so I want to do that now before we get into the meat of the podcast, which is Apple. And I just want to talk you through how I came across the idea for the podcast. So I'm a equity portfolio manager, which effectively means I look for the best companies in the world, invest in them on my client's behalf, uh, and build portfolios of those companies. So I'm often looking at brand new ideas for companies on the go. Uh, the idea for the podcast came when I was doing a trip to Stellenbosch, which is here in, in the Western Cape in South Africa. It's about a one-hour drive. And... Being the productive millennial that I am, I, in that hour drive, wanted to do some work on a company that I was researching. It was a global pharmaceutical company that produced insulin, uh, so important for the diabetes industry. And I knew that they are podcasts on just about anything, so I thought there'd be a podcast on this company too. And I guess, lo and behold, there wasn't. So there seemed to be some sort of gap in the market. And that's why I wanted to talk more about companies and talk more about investing, because I think there are more avenues to explore in terms of learning about finance and investing. But I feel like on the company side, it was a little bit light, as well as more on the layman stuff, information that could take you from knowing absolutely nothing about finance to getting a better handle on it. Um, I guess the next question is why someone like me might be qualified to talk about the subject. So... Like I said, I am an equity portfolio manager. I think about companies and invest in companies every single day. That, I guess, should be the, 
the basis for my experience, but it sort of extends a little bit more than that. But I also spent a little bit of time when I was doing my master's a few years ago uh, as a part-time university lecturer at the University of Cape Town, just around the corner from me. And I found it interesting that when students were in that sort of academic field, didn't really have any as much practical knowledge as I thought that they should have. You sort of pop out of university and you have all of this academic material and it still leaves you a little bit of a gap before you can actually understand what we do in finance on a day-to-day basis. So having come through that experience, I thought I could put out a podcast series that talked about the more practical side of finance and investing, levered towards a new analyst in the industry, a graduate student, maybe even a portfolio manager who just needed to look at a diabetes company. And that's where it started. But I then got to meet Tafa, learn about the Impact Co, and realize that this didn't just need to be for junior analysts in the industry. The, the topic of finance in, in the sort of realm of impact and education impacts every single one of us. So it, it then morphed to this idea of why is it only young analysts who should know about companies? We, we all interact with these companies every day. They influence our lives. Quite frankly, a lot of us are already invested in these companies because a large proportion of pension fund money or retirement annuity money or 401k money sits inside these companies. A lot of you who are working probably have an investment in Apple today. You just don't know about it. Uh, We also have the iPhones at home and all sorts of things. So it became something that could be used by, quite frankly, anyone. Um, And that's why I'm here today, to sort of share that as far as possible. My first few podcasts, I want to talk about different companies, some of the largest in the world, but also intersperse that with current events because it is quite a volatile environment right now. Uh, from a recessionary perspective, from a SVB and banking crisis perspective. So there are a lot of really cool talking points to discuss. Now, with any type of finance or investing podcast, there are a number of disclaimers that come that, that need to be put on the table. So I just want to do that now. It's crucial to realize that this podcast is for information and educational purposes. This is not meant as financial advice. Um, often, People building portfolios of companies or any other assets need to seek financial advice to really and truly understand their situation. I work with a wealth management company and advice is the biggest part of our business. So this is not meant as a recommendation for you, rather as a bit of information, a bit of entertainment and a little bit of education. You also need to know that I may hold stocks discussed in this podcast in my personal capacity or in a professional capacity. In this case, I do hold Apple in a professional capacity which is something you should be made aware of. Now, if you're here from the perspective of, I want to learn more about investing, I want to become an investor on my own behalf, then I want you to keep a couple of things in mind as we go through this Apple discussion. One, you don't need to be a professional investor to have a view on whether you want to invest in Apple or not. Stocks like these, stocks that we interact with every day, Walmart or Apple or in the South African context, ShopRite or Pick and Pay or uh, on MTN, for example. These are sorts of companies we interact with every single day. So we kind of know them already. Without being a professional investor, you probably have a view on the latest iPhone, whether the iPad is a good product, where you think Apple might be going for the next few years. Um, and there's a there's a book called One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, which is an interesting book. You should read it. I'll, I'll quote some some books that I read in my investing history as we go along to sort of give you a sense of what might help you from a literature perspective. 
Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street is one of them. It's a pretty old book right now, but it's very practical. The idea being that you don't have to be on Wall Street to invest. You know a lot of companies offhand already. One of the examples in the books was his wife realized that a lot of people were using a type of disposable glove from a very specific company. That was not her thinking from an investment perspective, but more from a, hey, I just noticed this in my day-to-day life perspective, told it to Peter and he eventually ended up investing in the company. You can take that similarly into companies like Apple. You inherently know this company because it forms such an important part of our life. So as I go through my discussion of Apple, start toying with that idea in your mind. Would you invest in Apple and why? The other thing that is important from an investing perspective, and I'll touch on it a couple of times, it's so important from an Apple perspective in particular because of what they've done in the industries they've operated in, is investing is all about the future of any company. It's not about the past. So you could have had the most fantastic story and the most fantastic company for the last 50 or 100 years. But it's not obvious that that is going to be a good investment for the next 100 years. One company I'm going to mention in this podcast is Nokia and how Apple effectively decimated the phone market for Nokia by introducing the iPhone back in 2007. If you think about the day before that that phone was released, Nokia probably had really good prospects for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, But it's the future of investing that matters. And the day after the iPhone came out and the years afterwards, effectively left Nokia down in the dumpster. It's the same thing we talk about something like Netflix in the context of Blockbuster, for example. So as much as I talk through this foundational story about Apple in this episode, realize that the crux from an investing perspective is about the future rather than about the past. The other reason why Apple is such an important company to discuss, it is the largest company by market cap in the world. It's worth $2.6 trillion dollars. I'll discuss market cap in a reel in the sort of week or two after this episode. So if you don't understand the concept, don't worry. It's a context of size when we talk about companies. Apple's the largest company in the world. The important point there is you you have to understand that these companies get large over time. And certain companies like your Apples and your Microsofts and your Googles were so foundational in this new world of technology that it really gives you a good understanding of how we got to where we are and gives you a lot of life lessons to learn, especially if you want to be something like an entrepreneur instead of an investor learning about the history of Apple. So there's some companies the way I won't really go into the history. It's not really practical. We care more about the current day and the future. But for something like Apple, the past is so important and so interesting. To that end, there is a book by Walter Isaacson called Steve Jobs. Walter Isaacson is a very famous biographer. His books are excellent. And his book on Steve Jobs is fantastic. Now, I know a lot of you would think, Anish, I don't want to read a book about Apple or any company, quite frankly. But because of how these companies started, these books sometimes read like soapies or stories or works of fiction. Trust me when I say the book by Walter Isaacson is is fantastic. So I'll discuss some of the history here, but if you really want to get a full context of it, I really do recommend that book. Now, when I say Apple, the thing that probably comes to your mind is the iPhone. I don't know how old you are, so I don't know how long you've had a history with Apple, but if you're a recent follower of the company, it's the iPhone that should dominate your conversation when it comes to Apple, and probably also the laptops, and now the wearables, the AirPods, um, But the original company, and when I say original, I'm talking about way back in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, that company had nothing to do with cell phones. In fact, cell phones didn't exist back then. 
The beginnings of Apple is one of those sort of fairy tale stories that you hear from in a, from a Silicon Valley perspective, where two Steves, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, meet in sort of random circumstances. I've got the name of the club they met, and it's called the Homebrew Computer Club Meeting. That's where they met. Jobs worked at Atari making games. He then worked at Intel afterwards, and uh, sorry, he worked at HP afterwards. And some of the engineers at HP actually moved over to Apple to design the first products that they made. Now, the Homebrew Computer Club meeting sounds dreadfully boring. It was. It was basically a club for computer enthusiasts. And at that stage, to, to be interested in computers meant you needed to be an enthusiast and a little bit of an engineer. Computers then weren't like they are now. You basically built a computer from the ground up. Uh, using integrated circuits, soldering. Um, you bought a lot of components from stores like Radio Shack. Um, and they were really for those those deep enthusiasts of computing. The interface that you used, for example, was sort of an MS-DOS-looking interface. Um, if you go into a computer, a Windows computer, run Windows R, which pops up the run function, then type CMD and enter, it'll pull up your command prompt. That's what computers looked like back in the day, just a black screen, text input. You need to tell a computer exactly what it needed to do, and it outputted you, uh, gave you an output in words, basically, on that sort of black screen. So they weren't compelling devices. They weren't interesting devices. They weren't in everyone's home, quite frankly. But Jobs and Wozniak realized that there was room in the market. And if you think about where, it, well, they thought about where computers were going to go, they realized that this type of device, as the technology developed, could be in every single person's home. As a consumer product, if you could build something that appeared in every single family home, it was going to be a fantastic business opportunity. Now, because of the state of computing back then, you had to make it more practical and usable for people. So, in Steve Jobs' parents' garage, because that's where Apple started in 1976, they came up with the idea of making a computer where everything was sort of structured in the unit. You didn't have to be a computer engineer or an electrical engineer to build this thing. You basically took it home, plugged it in, and used it. And that probably seems pretty rational to us in 2023. Uh, and a lot of this stuff is going to seem like no-brainers in 2023, but you have to put your mind back in the early days of computing to realize how seminal this was. So two of the ideas that were fantastic was instead of using a, a text-based prompting screen, you'd have something called a graphical user interface, which sounds super fancy, but it literally is just pictures on a screen. We have folders now that we drag around. Uh, we have icons that we can click. Uh, we basically see the computer from a visual perspective rather than from a text-based perspective. So they pioneered the work in, in having their computers have graphic interfaces and not text. Uh, and, and again, this is so strange to say, but you needed a way to then interact with a computer that wasn't text-based. And that didn't exist, quite frankly. So Jobs and Wozniak are credited with inventing the mouse uh, and trackpads in general. Uh, a way for you to sort of move across your screens and interact with your PC. Again, this sounds like a no-brainer today, but think about if if they didn't think about that kind of device, how would we be interacting with screens today? It could be dramatically different. So Jobs and Wozniak were basically at the forefront of creating how we use computers today. And it's the same for Bill Gates and Microsoft. It's the same for the pioneers at IBM. They were creating the world at large. Now, they were competitors to Apple. 
the likes of IBM and Microsoft, who together from a hardware and software perspective created computers. There was a Commodore computer that was quite popular. Computers were becoming something that people were discussing for their homes. Um, and that was basically the revolution. The Apple computers sort of stole the hearts of people because they were easier to use. They had these new innovations. And Apple computers did really well in those first few years, enough so that they could move out of the garage of Jobs' parents and actually become a successful and thriving company in this new world. Now, I want to talk about Steve Jobs specifically and why he's sort of this cult hero that a lot of tech CEOs and companies have modeled themselves after today. If you Google product launches for Apple when Steve Jobs was still alive, the format might seem familiar to you, but they really started with Steve Jobs back in the day. It's him standing on stage in front of a group of employees and press people and fans with a massive screen behind him, him with his black polo neck and his blue jeans, talking about companies. He created this idea of product launches that were more like shows than product launches back in the day. And it sort of vaulted him and a group of other CEOs into this kind of stardom and this kind of knowledge where people on the street understood who Steve Jobs was just like they knew who Bill Gates was at the time. And this was strange. It was weird. If you speak to your parents or grandparents, they didn't know who large CEOs were at different companies. That's because they weren't on the stage talking about their products. But Steve Jobs created this marketing associated with his own personal brand that really launched Apple. I mean, Steve Wozniak was, is crucial from an engineering perspective to the Apple story. He's probably more important. But Steve Jobs had this persona that was marketed well to create a brand associated with Apple. Having said that, he's not just a marketer. He was truly an innovator, innovator, but in the kind of the worst way, he came up with, and we'll talk about it when we get to the iPod a little bit later, he came up with these dramatic ideas for products like the iPhone and the iPod and the iMac that just seemed impossible to do at the time. Um, so the combination of him, this complete innovator who wants to push the boat out, and high-quality engineers like Wozniak just created this really interesting company. And quite frankly, that model has been replicated going forward. If you look at Tesla product launches and Microsoft product launches and Google product launches, the way we talk about guys like Tim Cook and Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai at the large tech companies, they've kind of followed on from what Steve Jobs did in becoming household names, which is extremely interesting. Now, the next phase in Apple computers, because we're still in the sort of late 80s here, is important, especially for you sort of budding entrepreneurs out there, because Steve Jobs was effectively pushed out of Apple in the late 1980s. Um, the company started to grow, and in that growth, they wanted a CEO who could steer the company in that growth. Jobs was fantastic at starting the company, but he might not be the best person to take the company from its sort of early success into its later stage success. And that's quite common from a large company perspective. There's a, there's a movie called The Intern with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway where he gets brought in as a quite old intern. But the underlying plot of the story is she has a very successful tech company that sells clothing online. And they effectively want to replace her with a CEO who could take her company to the next stage, even though she developed the idea. It was a very similar thing that happened to Jobs. They brought in a person called John Scully, who used to be the CEO of Pepsi, to lead the company into the next generation. Steve Jobs and John Scully clashed a number of things because Jobs with his big picture thinking is sometimes not focused on the day-to-day -day management of a company, especially from a financial perspective. 
So he left the company in the late 80s um, and went on to form his own company called NEXT or Next. Now, Next was a successful company in its own right, though not as successful as Apple, obviously. Um, they also made computers that they sold to companies and that they sold to uh, sort of schools and things for educational purposes. So they tried to sell computers. Um, but it, it leads us to a, another element of the early tech industry when so many things coalesced together. So Jobs leaves Apple. The year after he leaves Apple, he buys Lucasfilm's graphics division. This is 1986. Lucasfilm, of course, makes the Star Wars movies. The graphics division specifically does things associated with animation. He bought that business for $10 million. He became the CEO of that business, alongside him being the owner of Next. And that business is important because it eventually becomes Pixar. Uh, so t Steve Jobs was the CEO of Pixar when their first movie came out, which is Toy Story. And he was involved in leadership of that company all the way to 2006 or 2007, when they were sold to Disney for about $7.5 billion. So you have the story of a, a tech CEO that we're all well aware of that is also part of the story of one of the most famous animation companies of our time that now sits inside Disney. So there are fantastic stories in this, in this early part of the internet revolution. So fast forward a little bit into the early 90s, Apple's producing computers, but they're not exactly successful at it. Not as successful as the likes of IBM and Microsoft. And there's a very simple reason why, a very practical reason. Apple, like they do today, want to sell you a device where the hardware and software is packaged together and all the sort of peripherals are Apple-based. You get an Apple mouse, an Apple keyboard, uh, now Apple headphones and a watch, which didn't exist back in the day. You can understand how practically this was problematic for certain customers. If you're selling computers to businesses, for example, they might need those computers customized in a very specific way based on the jobs that they do. And Apple weren't willing to open up the ecosystem in that way. So if you look at the largest purchases of computers, and this is more or less all the time, it's going to be large businesses. If a JP Morgan needs 50,000 computers, that is a large contract relative to just selling them at home. Apple computers are also more expensive than the computers made by the likes of IBM and Microsoft. They effectively had to make all their parts uh, and source all their parts. So there was a lot of research and development, and thus their computers cost more. So in the early 90s, under John Scully, Apple lost a lot of market share. They effectively weren't the top-selling computer brand in the world. And Steve Jobs was brought back into Apple in the late 90s, 1997, when Apple bought NEXT or Next and brought then Steve Jobs back into the fold. And this is sort of the second revolution of Steve Jobs, because if you think about the first revolution, where him and Wozniak effectively created a new version of PC, it was monumental. The second phase is just as monumental, if not more, quite frankly, because the first two projects that Jobs worked on in the late 90s were the iMac as well as the iPod, both exceptionally important devices in modern computing. So the iPod, this is an example of Jobs's complete, I will innovate to, to the standard that doesn't basically exist because this is what I want from a product, went to his engineers and said, I want a music device that can store thousands of songs. I want the design to be very specific and user-friendly. And I also want the audio quality to be better than anything that's ever existed with significant battery life. The, the list of things that he wanted together 
just seemed impossible to do. But Apple engineers managed to figure it out. And the first iPod was created. That came out in 2001. It absolutely changed the music industry completely because it was partnered with iTunes as a service. If you think about how we listened to audio back then, we had Walkmans and we had CD players and you had to carry around your cassettes or your CDs. We're talking now about having 10,000 songs in your pocket, which again, seems very logical and rational in 2023. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was unheard of. From a computing perspective, Jobs also went in a slightly different way. It was the creation of the iMac. Now, if, if you think back to the older iMacs and in fact, new iMacs have a bit of color again, so they kind of have that coming back. The original iMacs were big, bulky computers, like all computers were, but they were designed in a way that was extremely impressive. They had this sort of blue and coral coloring to them. You could pick the color that you wanted. They looked better than most computers. You could sort of see through them. The Apple logo stood out. They were basically products that you really, really wanted. Jobs realized that people were willing to spend more for a high-quality product if it validated their spending. He realized that Apple computers were not going to be in everyone's household, but if you can design them in a way that they're wanted in every household, you can charge more, validate that cost, and have a really reasonable place in an industry where you're not going to go away. From a design perspective, uh, Johnny Ives was a legendary designer for Apple. Uh, you can sort of Google his, his design methodology and style. He's crucially important from a design perspective throughout Apple's life story all the way into the latter part of the 2000s. Um, so you had the iMac computer that looked interesting. You had the iPod that was just completely brand new. In the early 2000s, they also came up with a clamshell computer, which is a laptop, effectively. But Google the design of the laptop. It, it had a handle. It had specific coloring. It looked very futuristic next to laptops of the day. It was just a product that you really, really wanted. So from a company in the early 90s that was struggling to sort of gain a footing in computers, gained a really niche footing in computers that, that worked for them. And Apple computers basically became that high-end high quality, highly innovative brand that we sort of know and love today. And in that early 2000s period, the company did really, really well. The iPod and the computing division were basically working hand in hand from a revenue or sales perspective. They were kind of equal and growing together. So the business had this nice diversification. And diversification is just a big word of saying you have sort of your hand in multiple pots. And from an investing perspective, we really like the idea of diversification because it takes away risk. If you think about a world where maybe the iMac didn't do as well, but the iPod continues to do well, you sort of took away some of the risk that one of them might not do well uh, and one of them might not uh, might do well. And we're going to come back to this point because risk and the idea of diversification is an important story in Apple today. The iPhone dominates Apple sales, which means that the iPhone has to do extremely well in perpetuity unless something else can help take away some of that heavy load that the iPhone needs to carry. Now, in terms of timeline, we're at a really important point. We're in the 2000s, and specifically in 2007, we had Steve Jobs' sort of third largest product ever. So we had the computer, the iPod, and now in 2007, the iPhone. For me, there's a 10-minute video, the initial part of the iPhone launch that I would say everyone should watch. It is truly fantastic in terms of product launching. He is sort of, 
at that stage from a showman perspective at the peak of his powers. That video is on YouTube. You can, of course, watch that. Um, the launch of the iPhone had everything to do with the fact that phones, and this is the sort of early stages of smartphones, had a very specific design associated with them. They were very square. They had large QWERTY keyboards at the bottom, physical keyboards. Um, they were difficult to use. And Jobs sat back into the thing that he's been doing now for his entire career at that stage. Let's build something completely innovative. So a phone that was fully touchscreen, no buttons whatsoever except a home button. A phone that you could touch in a multi-touch way, which seems odd now because we're so used to sort of pinch to zoom and things like that. But at, this, at that stage, you could only touch a touchscreen device with one finger. The touchscreens themselves were very sort of finicky and dull. You had to really press down to get a touch-sensitive uh, screen to react. But the first iPhone came out with that first multi-gesture screen that was really fluid and easy to use. Uh, it combined everything that was good about an iPod in as well, as well as a lot of other features from a software perspective that made it completely stand out. And at that stage, the iPod and the iMac range, in fact, that was the first uh, the first year that they, or the year before was the first year they launched what we know now as the MacBook, created a company that had a lot of good things going for it. You had an iPhone that's, that started to dominate very quickly. You had a line of laptops that were not sort of the leading laptops in terms of market share, but they did quite well for a certain user base. Same with the computers. And of course, you had the iPod. So you had four really good devices Across a couple of categories, that did exceptionally well. A couple of years later, this is in 2010, um, Steve Jobs and Apple launched the iPad, which was the last, last product that he created before he passed away, unfortunately, in 2011. So you have a company that is responsible for so much innovation in our tech industry. And if you take the small elements and carry them to where we are now, seminal in, in the way we do what we do today. If you think about touchscreens, the iPad, the computer, the iPod, it really has changed the way we, we, we think and work with computers. Um, so that is sort of the history of Apple wrapped up into a nutshell until Steve Jobs' death in 2011. That's when Tim Cook takes over as CEO. And like I said, it's a fantastic, fascinating story with lots of twists and turns and extremely important categories. Now, I'm going to fast forward to where we are today, 2023. And I'd love, quite frankly, to spend a couple of minutes talking about the significant innovations in those last 10 or 12 years. But the list is pretty small. If you think about a company that every 10 or 20 years created an absolute game changer in terms of products, the last 10 or 12 years haven't been that for Apple. And I think that's crucial. You can't simply rely on the history of a company to make it a good investment. I have a list of the, their current products, and it's, it's a large list, to be quite frank, which is great. But you'll see where they, we come to a little bit of a problem from an investing perspective. So you have the iPhone, of course. You have the iPad, a larger iPhone. You have the iMac, which is a desktop PC, just like the iMacs of old, but much better looking, of course. Uh, you have the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air laptops. You have a Mac Mini, which is effectively a really sort of small computer. It's just the computational part of a computer. You attach a screen and other peripheral devices, as well as Apple TV. And I'm talking about the device, which is Apple TV. So those are your sort of hard products that Apple sells. Uh, you then have accessories, which I'll bucket on in their own right. And I think that's important. I'll talk to that in a second. 
And that's things like AirPods and iWatches that fall into the wearables category. And finally, you have services, so software-related products. And there you have things like iCloud, you have Apple TV+, Plus, you have the iTunes Store, of course, and just the general app store. Those are the three realms that Apple is operating under. Now, I mentioned Nokia a couple of times. When I think of companies like Apple's, companies that sell hardware, I seriously consider what the world is going to look like from here in the next two years, four years, six years, and 10 years. Because we've learned from the Nokia example and the BlackBerry example and the Blockbuster example that you can't sit on your laurels when you have a good idea, especially in product categories like phones and technology. Quite frankly, a brand new phone could come out tomorrow that absolutely decimates the iPhone. Now, that sounds crazy to say, given how entrenched the iPhone is in our world. But remember how entrenched Nokia and BlackBerry were in our world. So from an investment perspective, you sort of have to, you have to be respectful of the significant history that Apple has had. But very, very, be very cognizant of where the company is going to go. So with all that history now sort of packaged in a segment, I want to talk about Apple today and where they're doing well and where they aren't and what we might want to think about. And let's start with innovation. So we had the iPad come out in 2010. I hunted around for what, what innovations they might have had since in the Tim Cook years. A couple of things came up. Siri was an innovation in the sense that it was the first virtual assistant added to a phone. That's great if we consider what it means for artificial intelligence, etc. You then arguably had the iWatch, which is innovation from a product category perspective. But quite frankly, you had smartwatches before the iWatch. So it's it's not as seminal as some of the products they've had in the past, like the iPod. You could also argue the AirPods and the AirPod Maxes are innovations. But again, if you think about Bose headphones, for example, uh, or Bang & Olufsen headphones and speakers, they weren't exactly the first to have in-ear headphones. The cell phone manufacturers like Samsung and Xiaomi also started releasing those in advance of the AirPod. It's ironic then that Apple has become, under Tim Cook, the company that is willing to let innovation go past them and then is willing to create products and spend a lot of money creating good products after the fact. So, for example, when the Gear and Gear S2 watches came out, these are Samsung watches, there was no iWatch. But when the iWatch came out, it significantly dominated and now, in terms of market share, dominates all other smartwatches. If you think about the AirPods, they did exactly the same thing. They are the most noticeable AirPods you will see around. You should see them everywhere. And in fact, AirPods is now the word for them, regardless of whether you're using an Apple version or not. Um, same for the Maxes, which now competes with some of the best headphones in the world, uh, regardless of the fact that Apple sort of came onto this a little bit later um, than other manufacturers. So it's a company that's now willing to lag innovation, but still bears that extremely high quality mark where people are willing to wait. You know the jokes of iOS users who say they've had those these innovations in their phones for years and years, and we simply haven't. Uh, another example of something very practical that's happening is curved screens. A number of cell phone companies have curved screens and folding screens in their devices. Apple hasn't done it yet, but it sort of fits with this new narrative of Apple is willing to wait, innovate, and come out with a high-quality product without making any mistakes. 
that mentality is extremely different from the Steve Jobs mentality we knew from early in Apple's life. But it is a good change to Apple in a sense. Tim Cook has stewarded Apple since 2011 to still being a high-quality, high-performing company. It has become and stays the largest company in the world now because it's done exceptionally well from a company perspective. So you sort of, this Tim Cook, has married together the, the innovation that Steve Jobs has always had together with what Apple wanted from John Scully in the late 90s, a company that financially was extremely sound and extremely solid. The one innovation that I want to mention that Apple has done, which is extremely crucial but goes under the radar, is the creation of their M chips. It started with the M1 and we're on M version X now. Uh, X is in a placeholder for new M chips to come. Realize that as much as it's not an innovation that sits at the top of an iPhone, it is extremely crucial because the M chips are Apple's chips rather than Apple having to buy chips from elsewhere. For example, Apple bought chips that powered their laptops from Intel. They bought chips that powered their phone from the likes of Samsung and Qualcomm. They now make their own chips to power their phones and laptops. They design them and get a company called Taiwan Semiconductor, a foundry, which we will discuss in later episodes, to make those chips for them. The phones are now faster, they're better, they're more efficient and more optimized. It is a major change for Apple, even though it's not a sexy change for Apple. So that's the one element of innovation that has been super crucial. Now, if we think about the split of revenue in the early 2000s, we had effectively 40% of revenue in iPod and 40% of revenue in computing. That looks very different today. The iPhone, like I said, absolutely dominates. Um, the, the products category accounts for 80% of Apple's revenue. Half of the company's revenue comes from iPhones. So the company dominates in that sense. To that end, wearables accounts for about 10% of revenue right now. And that is intrinsically linked to the phones. I would say phone and phone-related devices accounts for almost two-thirds of Apple's revenue. It means that the iPhone needs to be the best product to achieve the most sales, to maintain Apple's market share for as long as possible. It has the risk of becoming the, it has the risk of having the Nokia effect to it in that if it becomes too important to Apple and if someone can shake them off their throne, it can become a major risk. So that's something you need to think about from an investing perspective. In terms of the other big products, so Mac and iPad account for 10% of revenue each. Well, the iPad accounts for 7% of revenue. So we can round up to about 10% revenue. The Mac computer, like the early iMacs in the early 90s, can't compete with the likes of HP and Lenovo uh, and Acer, quite frankly, because they still are, as they used to be, expensive, fully encased in one software and hardware, and not as malleable as some of these other brands. So they're never going to be the most used computers at work and things like that. The iPad has problems growing significantly in revenue for a different reason. Tablets are actually not as popular as you may think. I know you might see a lot of iPads around, but quite frankly, not as many iPads are sold as laptop computers. Uh, the tablet category for a long time has sort of meandered along and hasn't grown significantly. Apple do sell the most tablets, Samsung in close second, but unfortunately that category isn't exactly growing. And why I mention this is because I'm thinking about diversification here. If the iPhone is as successful as it is, you want to sort of pair it up with other products to take away some of that risk. And quite frankly, 
Apple's computers and their tablet is just not pulling its weight just yet. The wearables have grown extremely quickly, and that's great to see. The problem with the wearables is it's intrinsically linked to the devices like an iPhone. So they don't, they don't exactly stand out on their own as the iPod did, for example, back in the day. Now, I mentioned that products were effectively 80% of revenue. One part of Apple's sales that have grown fantastically over the last few years is the services category, which accounts for 20% of revenue. I mentioned earlier that things, these are things like the cloud, uh, iCloud specifically, Apple TV+, etc. But the one area where Apple is, is, has been doing exceptionally well and the market has validated them for it is the App Store. How the App Store works is you can only download apps from the App Store on Apple phones. That's part of their closed system that they have. That's different for iOS devices, for example. Any dollar of revenue that is earned by any app on the App Store, Apple receives 30% of that revenue for themselves. That is significant. If you think about how many iPhones and iPads and MacBooks and iMacs are on the world, every single app downloaded, every single... Uh, streaming sent received, like spending on something like Netflix, for example, Apple will receive 30% of that revenue. It is the same for Google and the Play Store. So they're not exactly sort of outpricing everyone else, but it has been an important revenue generator for them because they don't have to sell more devices, quite frankly, to gain that revenue. If you don't replace your iPhone as often, which a lot of people aren't doing, you're still going to download apps and Apple will still get the benefit of those apps. Unfortunately, this has come into a little bit of regulatory scrutiny recently uh, when Apple went to court with a company called Epic Games, which makes Fortnite, because Fortnite and Epic Games effectively, effectively said that this is kind of a monopoly, an environment where one company is dominating or a couple of companies are dominating and they don't like it. So they tried to get you to pay for Fortnite outside the App Store. Apple took them down. Epic took them to court. It's still sort of in court proceedings, but quite frankly, it does seem very expensive and very onerous for companies to launch on the App Store. And given that there's no other alternative to reach an Apple consumer, it does cause quite a problem. Now, Apple have stepped in to change some of their terms here. If you earn less than a million dollars on the App Store, you only get charged 15%, which is great. And if you're in a category called sort of content creators, uh, so the likes of news producers, television producers like Netflix, etc., then you can actually have payments happen off the App Store. So in real time, they are changing their strategy with respect to their App Store and how they charge for the App Store. The market has definitely given Apple the benefit of the doubt in terms of the services or the App Store generating really nice revenue that wasn't there in the past because we are getting more used to buying apps, etc. But there is this inherent risk that the App Store gets shaken out from a regulatory perspective, from a competitive perspective. And this is part of that messaging of how, sure, things are in place right now and there's a status quo that looks really good, but we have to consider the future in terms of our investments. Um, to that end, there are always going to be risks associated with the companies that we invest in. And we have to think about the future when it comes to investing. So a really important one, like the regulatory risk we have with the App Store and the, and the court case that's happening with Epic Games is the more and more that Apple has produced its products offshore in China, as well as in Taiwan, the M chips that I talked about, it does create a geographical issue. So Apple creates their products via a company called Foxconn. 
in China. And in Taiwan, their chips, the M chips, come from Taiwan Semiconductor. There's always going to be risk associated with operating in different environments. So you might or might not know, China was locked down for a significant part of last year, and that hampered whether Apple could actually get iPhones out of the country. From a different perspective, Taiwan sits in a sort of hotly contested area with a lot of geopolitical risk. Because Apple relies so much on Taiwan, if anything had to happen to Taiwan or Taiwan semiconductors, it could cause significant problems for Apple, who requires all of those chips to put into iPhones. So from an investment perspective, this is now looking forward, we really are trying to grapple with this idea of what's the next big thing for Apple? Can the iPhone dominate in perpetuity? Will there be some other product that can come out and do exceptionally well? Can the wearables, Mac and iPad segments continue to sort of support that iPhone growth? And finally, can the App Store take advantage of all of those products by charging the app creators who put out their products that we use on all of these app stores. That's kind of the nub of where we are from an Apple perspective right now. Now, my producer said that I need to keep this episode as short as possible, and I feel like I've already gone quite far, but I could quite frankly talk about this for hours. Um, I think there's two elements to the story of Apple. One, the significant past that has led Apple to be the company that it is today. And the second, where we expect this company to go into the future. Like I said, from an investing perspective, we really need to be conscious and cognizant of the future rather than the past. But with Apple specifically and some of the larger tech companies I will discuss, the past is crucial to understand and remember because it has brought us to this point in computing uh, from an information age. These companies, like I've said, have been seminal in getting us to this point. Now, this is not the end of Apple. The way it works with these companies are we get new information every single day. So this was supposed to get you in the door and get you an understanding of Apple and where we've come. I'm going to leave it there today and we might come back to Apple in the future if there are new events and new concepts and new ideas. But my next couple of episodes will of course be on other companies as well as any current events that I feel might be important for you guys to know. If you made it this far, thank you very much. I appreciate you listening to this episode. There is more to come. Please reach out to us on any of the social media platforms, YouTube or uh, Instagram. If you want to comment on this or you want me to answer any questions, uh, if you're on Spotify, that's great. If you could leave a review, that would be very helpful to us. And if you're on YouTube, a like, a subscribe would be great. Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast or video podcast. Um, this has been Nish and I look forward to seeing you guys again. Thank you very much.